The following sermon by Pastor Rick Holland is brought to you by Mission Road Bible Church. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com. Well, open your Bibles to the book of John, chapter 16. As you know, we're working our way through this upper room discourse, which is now spilled out of the upper room, down into the, onto the slopes of the Temple Mount, moving toward the Kidron Valley, where Jesus will soon be in agony in his prayer. These are the final words then he has to his disciples. And we're really coming up to the crescendo of what he has in terms of, instru- of his instruction. You'll see that we're in verse 8, and we'll look at verses 8 through 11 today, but we only move down through verses 33, and then he prays, and that's it. So we're in the last lap of Jesus' final instruction to his favorite men about the most important mission, and that's taking the gospel to all the nations. Let's follow along as I read, beginning in verse 8. And he, that's the Holy Spirit, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you no longer see me. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has already been judged. One of the most famous stories in the Bible is that of David and Goliath. It's difficult to find anyone who doesn't know, at least in a general flow of plot, the story of David and Goliath. Even unbelievers talk about David and Goliath. You remember the story, Goliath representing the Philistines was taunting the army of Israel and mocking God. No one would take his challenge seriously, afraid of their own death. Even the best warriors and certainly King Saul backed away from Goliath's challenge. Then there was a delivery boy, a shepherd boy sent to basically bring supplies David came to the front line, observed Goliath standing at over nine and a half feet tall, making a mockery of God, and incensed by such blasphemy, he volunteered to go take on Goliath. Now, after a lot of squabbling, David ends up on the battlefield with the giant Goliath. If you want to follow along, this is very important to what we have to say today about the Holy Spirit, oddly enough. We're going to look for a minute at 1 Samuel chapter 17. It's the famous story of David and Goliath. And you remember all the preparation. They said, you can't go. His brother said, you're silly to go. Saul says, well, if you're going to go, wear my armor. It was way too big. David says, no, I'll take my my staff and my slingshot and some stones and I'll be fine. Let's pick up the story where David is actually heading onto the battlefield In 1 Samuel 17, beginning of verse 40. He took his stick in his hand and chose for himself five smooth stones from the brook. Now, a little footnote on that. These would have been stones that were the size of ping pong balls or golf balls. These weren't little rocks that a child could pick up and throw. He put them in the shepherd's bag, which he had, even in his pouch. And his sling was in his hand, and he appeared 
they approached the Philistine. I love this. He approached the Philistine. Then the Philistine came and approached David. David comes out the battlefield. He comes toward him. There's so much going on in here. We'll study this sometime. Uh, But the writer doesn't even want to call him Goliath very much. He just calls him the Philistine. Then the Philistine came and approached David with a shield bearer in front of him. He has a little smaller guy holding the shield in front of him. When the Philistine looked and saw David, literally it says, he resented him. He despised him. He disdained him. For he was but a youth and ruddy with a handsome appearance. Goliath knew that winning against such an unworthy opponent was going to mean less accolades for his giant reputation. He was insulted. How can you possibly send this little guy out to do battle with me? Verse 43, then the Philistine said to David, am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Goliath only mentions David's staff, his stick, probably because he didn't see the real weapon, the sling. Then he cursed David by his Philistine gods, perhaps Dagon or um, Astares or one of his idols. Then verse 44, the Philistine also said to David, come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds, the sky, the beasts of the field. And in verses 45 to 47, you find David's longest speech in this whole interplay. And what David lacked in size, by the way, he made up in two areas. Zeal for the reputation of Yahweh, the God of Israel, and his undaunted trust in God's ability to preserve him against all odds. Verse 45, then David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword and a spear and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have taunted. This day the Lord will deliver you up into my hands. I will strike you down and remove your head from you. And I will give the dead bodies of the armies of the Philistines this day to the birds of the sky and the wild beasts of the earth. Uh, David can talk as easily smack as as Goliath can about being dead and having your carcass fed to the birds. That all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. Don't miss that. That all the earth shall know that there's a God in Israel. And that all the assembly may know that the Lord God does not deliver by the sword or by the spear, but the battle is the Lord's. And he will give you into our hands. This is the fulcrum of the story. Here's the purpose of David's encounter. Here's the source of David's faith. Here's the power behind David's courage. The battle is the Lord's. God is doing something, Goliath, on this battlefield that's bigger than you and me. It's more than we can see with our eyes. By the way, these purposes still occupy the passions of those who love God. Verse 48. Then it happened when the Philistine rose and came and drew near to meet David. He walked slowly because he had so much armor on, by the way. That David, this is unbelievable. David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. He took advantage of his unencumbered shepherd's clothing. Plus, he ran toward Goliath when all the other men had run away from Goliath for 40 days. David put his hand into his bag, took from it a stone, and slung it, and struck the Philistine 
on his forehead, and the stone sank into his forehead so that he fell on his face to the ground. Stones from a slingshot can reach upwards of 120 miles per hour. Thus David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. And he struck the Philistine and killed him. But there was no sword in David's hand. Uh, Dale Ralph Davis, who's an Old Testament commentator, I love what he says about this passage. He says, um, uh, he, he titles the chapter where he talks about David and Goliath, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, thud. <laughs> Verse 51. The, and this is what we don't realize. Uh, then David ran over and stood over the Philistine and took the Philistine's sword and drew it out of its stealth, out of its sheath, and killed him. Do you notice that? Goliath was still alive. Probably dazed, having this rock in his head, looking up at this little shepherd boy with his own sword. And he cuts his head off. Guys, this is not Veggie Tales. Then when the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. You say, hang on, Rick, we're studying the Gospel of John. We're looking at the upper room discourse. We're talking about the Holy Spirit being sent and his empowerment. What in the world does David and Goliath have to do with this? Everything. Because it's in in essence the same thing. What's the point? Most people know this story as as an archetype of an underdog winning. David slew Goliath. However, the point of this passage is very simple. God did work that no one else saw through someone who was seriously an underdog. God slew Goliath through David. David was very careful all throughout this passage to say, the battle belongs to the Lord. The Lord will deliver you over to me. This is God's battle. He will win it. This is God. This is God. This is God. And make no mistake, when when he took the head of Goliath, this is interesting, and went on a tour of Israel showing people the head of Goliath, he was very careful not to pound his chest and say, look what I did. But was very careful to say, look what the Lord did. Now, as we come to John 16, we find a very similar stage being set. The disciples were about to be against all odds. David stood against Goliath. The disciples were literally about to stand against the whole world. The Roman government would make believing in the gospel a capital offense for which death was certain. The Jews would call the gospel a heresy worthy of excommunication from the synagogue and death. Families would be divided. Cities would be upended. Acts 17 says that those who preach the gospel literally upset the world. Why? How could this little band of 11 men talking to Jesus on the eastern slope of the Temple Mount, about to be scattered, about to run for their lives, about to show incredible cowardice, how in the world would God change the world 
through their testimony? The answer is that he would send through Jesus Christ and his petition the Holy Spirit to work through them and in them and for them in ways that would make no sense to the world any more than it made sense for a little shepherd boy to slay the tallest and most ferocious man in the world. These men would make such an impact in the world that the calendar would be changed. Geographical borders would be altered. The whole world of commerce would be upended. Ethics would be redefined. But have you read about these men over the previous chapters in John or the synoptics? These were, this was the knucklehead club. I mean, these were the men who didn't get it. These are men who only moments before this time are arguing with each other about who's going to sit in the best place to be seen as the highest and perceived as the best when Jesus takes over the temple mount the next day. They were absolutely clueless. And you have to ask, well, then what made these guys, these rascal disciples, such ferocious witnesses who would all die because of the gospel or at the hand of executioners as martyrs. What would turn these men into those kind of men? The answer is the same thing that turned a little shepherd boy into a giant slayer. God. God who would work through them. God who would work within them. And sometimes God who would work instead of them. Now, pick it up in chapter 16, back in John. Passage that you know very well, because we looked at it last week. He says in verse 7, the previous verse, I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come. He won't come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. This is remarkable. We looked at this last time, that Jesus says, it's not to your advantage that I stay here. Now, if you had the Son of God with you, incarnate God, wouldn't you want him to stay? And they did. He says, no, no, you don't get it. It's to my advantage, it's to your advantage, rather, if I go away. And they had to say, our advantage, if you're not here? I mean, you can heal people. You can raise people from the dead. Is there any safer person to be with than a guy who can raise you from the dead? I mean, if the worst thing that happens to you happens and you die, at least you've got hope that he's going to bring you back. He was the ultimate superhero of his day. There was no defense that they needed as long as he was alive. He says, no, no, no. It's going to be better for you if I'm not here. And they're going, what? What's going to be better for us if you're not here? How is that? And we looked at that last, last time. Jesus, in his incarnation, localized deity. So what do you mean by that? God took on a body and was in one place at one time. But the Holy Spirit, being omnipresent and omniscient, being sent to every believer, would be all over the planet, indwelling and abiding with every believer. And Jesus says, that's better than my localized presence. So we pick it up in verse 18. Verse 8, rather. And he, and the Holy Spirit, when he comes, and now we find out the entire ministry of the Holy Spirit with reference to the world. He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness 
and judgment. Now, what you have structurally here is Jesus states the whole case in verse 8, and then the following three verses goes back and picks up each of those phrases and explains what he means by those phrases. The word convict is a very important Greek word, elexo. It means to, to show someone that you've done, it, done something wrong, to summon you to repent by bringing light or exposure to what you've done, to make you found out, set things right. It's a rebuke, a discipline. It can even be translated as a punishment. At the end of verse 7, Jesus promises to send the Holy Spirit specifically to the disciples. He doesn't say, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to Christians. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to the world. Now, we find out that that's the case later in the epistles and in the book of Acts. But don't miss the authorial original intent here. Jesus is saying, I will send the Holy Spirit to you. He's looking specifically into the eyes of these scared men. This seems to indicate that the Spirit's work in verses 8 through 11 would take place, this is important, primarily through these men. Also, it would take place in the same categories through subsequent believers, even you and even me. In other words, Jesus sends the Spirit to the disciples in verse 7, but through the disciples, the ministry of the Holy Spirit will continue to be the ministry of Jesus Christ himself. He said, what I've done in the world, the Holy Spirit is going to now do, but the Holy Spirit is not going to come as some mist, as some cloud, as some vapor that surrounds the world, and people say, oh, the Holy Spirit is doing things. No, the Holy Spirit works through men. You say, well, what about, what about people who know right from wrong? What about people... Paul took care of that. In Romans chapter 2, he says, people understand that because God gave them a conscience. People understood right from wrong. The Holy Spirit was working in the conscience even before John chapter 16. This is something special. This is something unique. This is something life-altering and world-changing that the Holy Spirit was going to do things to the world, do things in the world, mess with the lives of unbelievers through... Believers, the disciples originally, and you and me in our day. The same word is used in John chapter 3, verse 20, in, in chapter 19. This is the judgment that the light has come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. It's exactly what we're talking about here in John 16. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be Convicted, exposed, prosecuted. That's the same word. So this ministry of exposing and prosecuting, dealing with the world has, has been begun by Jesus, but it's going to be continued by the Holy Spirit, this is important, through the ministry of believers, through the ministry of disciples. Now how would they do that? Through the preaching and teaching of the gospel. It's very simple. The preaching and teaching of the gospel is the means by which the Holy Spirit deals with the world regarding sin and righteousness and judgment. Through the preaching and teaching of the gospel, the Holy Spirit, who takes up residence in the hearts of believers, convicts the world, prosecutes the world. It's remarkable that the Holy Spirit uses men to do his work. This is, this is unbelievable as a privilege and unmistakable in its fruit. Remember 2 Timothy 3.16? All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for approved, for correction and training in righteousness. 
men will teach the Holy Scriptures and do the work of the Holy Spirit. 2 Timothy 4.2, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. On what authority? And the answer is the authority of the Holy Spirit working through the scriptures and the preaching of the gospel to deal with the lives of unbelievers. Titus 1.9, holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching so that he will be able to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. Titus 1.13, this testimony is true. For this reason, reprove them severely so they may be sound in the faith. In other words, work the work of God by what you say in reference to the gospel. It's unbelievable. The Holy Spirit is alive and well at work in the world where? Through you. Sometimes we, we looked, I've even heard this passage looked, well, the Holy Spirit come and he convicts the world of sin. Well, how? Do people just sit around and say, well, I guess I'm a sinner. If God's working in their heart, drawing them through a, 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 a gospel presentation preached, perhaps. But this passage indicates that the Holy Spirit works through people telling people gospel truth. Even in Titus 2.15, these things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. How in the world can someone do that when Matthew chapter 28 says, all authority has been given to me, says who? Jesus. He says, speak with all authority. How can we do that? Only if we have the Holy Spirit. How do we know we have the Holy Spirit? Because what we're saying is true gospel truth and it's exposition from his holy scriptures. Through the faithful teaching and preaching of God's word, through the clarity of the gospel, the Holy Spirit convicts the world with respect to three categories. Sin, righteousness, and judgment. Now here's the crucial point. The ministry of the Holy Spirit, spelled out in these verses, takes place through our faithful delivery of the gospel. When you study the rest of the New Testament, you find that there are two responses to this conviction. For some, it's conversion. They're convicted about their sin and righteousness. They're afraid of coming judgment. And because of that, they respond in repentance. For some, though, it only serves to harden their heart. The same sun that melts the wax hardens the clay. And it's these responses that we obtain when we present the gospel. Now, this is, this is wonderfully encouraging. When you evangelize, when you tell someone the gospel and they receive it or reject it, you are doing the work of the Holy Spirit extended through his indwelling presence in us and abiding with the gospel presentation that Jesus came to bring and the Holy Spirit extends through us. So verse 8 is the introduction, the explanation of those three categories. Now, beginning at verse 9, he goes back and picks up those three categories and explains them. And so we're going to move uh, very quickly through these. These are three ways the Holy Spirit helps the church in the preaching of the gospel. Very simple. Three ways the Holy Spirit helps the church in the preaching of the gospel. You could also say three ways the Holy Spirit works in the preaching of the gospel. The first is in verse 9. 
by convicting the world of the sin of unbelief. By convicting the world of the sin of unbelief. He goes back to that first category. He says, concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. The ultimate sin is not believing the gospel. You can talk about any sin you want to, but the great sin for which you will suffer in hell eternally is the rejection of the free offer of God's grace in the good news that Jesus died for sinners, rose from the dead, and offers them peace through his peace with God. But don't, don't miss the focus here of the gospel. Jesus could have said, because they do not believe the gospel, but he didn't. He could have said, because they do not believe the truth. He's already talked about the truth, but he didn't. He could have said, because they don't believe God, but he didn't. What does he say? Concerning sin, because they do not believe where? In me. I had a, a student ask me a few years ago, um, says, Rick, I, I've been listening to your, your sermons for a few years here and been sitting in the gym and part of your Crossroads ministry. And, and I, I, is it fair to say that you really think that the gospel is all about Jesus? I said, wow, you caught me. <laughs> yes, the gospel is all about Jesus. Let me say it again and again and again. The gospel is not a plan. The gospel is a person. The gospel is not a way that you're saved. It's a person you're saved from and a person you're saved by and a person you're saved for. We're not giving the plan of salvation. We give the person of salvation. We're not offering an alternative way to live, an alternative way to believe. We're offering them a relationship with the resurrected living God in Jesus Christ. That's a way different accent and a way different emphasis. The sin of disbelief is not in the gospel here. It's in me. The gospel is focused and centralized in the person of Christ. Just for a minute, turn over to 1 Peter chapter 2. This, this was one of those life-changing, perspective-altering verses when I, when I first was, was um, studying it. It was one of those verses I read over and over, and until I stopped and meditated on it and studied it, I didn't really see the full impact of what Peter was saying. In 1 Peter chapter 2, he's... Uh, He's describing the, the, the greatness of, of God in Christ. He's, he's describing what, what, what God has done for, for those who have been redeemed and, and believed. Then in verse 9, he says, You are a chosen race. Great. In other words, you now take the place that Israel took as my voice piece on the planet. You're a royal priesthood. Wow. The higher echelon of religious representation between God and man and man and God, you now, are belong, you now belong to that royal priesthood. A holy nation, you've been set aside to God. A people for God's own possession, you now are God's special ownership. Why? Why has he saved us? Listen, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Ladies and gentlemen, that is evangelism. Proclaiming the excellencies of Christ. 
And here's the good news. If you know enough to be saved, you know enough to evangelize. And if you don't know enough to evangelize, it is unlikely you know the gospel well enough to be a Christian. You don't have to be a PhD theologian. Peter also says, be ready to give a defense for the hope that's where? It's within you. Just tell your testimony. I don't understand all the theological nuances, but let me tell you what God did. He convicted me of my sin. He showed me his righteousness. He warned me of his judgment and showed me my Savior in Christ. He convicts the world of the sin of unbelief. And when we participate with the Holy Spirit in that, we're bringing people to the point where they understand that the issue is to receive or reject Jesus. Secondly, by convicting the world of the righteousness of Christ. Now we move to the theologically deep end of the pool by convicting the world of the righteousness of Christ. Verse 10, he says, and concerning righteousness, that subject, because I go to the Father and you no longer see me. What is he talking about here? In other words, the message of Jesus' righteousness as supreme, man's righteousness as filthy rags, will be explained in the gospel since Jesus isn't present on earth. It extends when Jesus is gone through our telling the gospel. He talks about righteousness. That is a critical feature in all of our evangelization. We have to come to the issue of righteousness. Are you good enough to meet God? Is your righteousness high enough to please God, to allow you to have a relationship with him, ultimately to enter into his heaven? The great answer to that is even our best righteousness, Isaiah says, is as filthy rags. So on what basis would God ever receive anyone? One of the best parts of this last week uh, at our youth camp where I was able to preach is, is to describe this to the students. There's nothing I enjoy describing any better than, than the gospel truth. And I was able to tell them, listen, this is how it is. God demands that you're perfect to go to heaven. That's not good news. Because even if today I could be perfect for the rest of my life, the problem is my previous life, what I've done. And by the way, you're not going to be perfect from here to the rest of your life. We're flawed. We're messed up. You don't have to teach a two-year-old how to disobey. The problem is not in the world. It's in our hearts. You were born un. Righteous, born with a stiff arm in God's face, born as a rebel against the king of the universe. Oh, maybe more subtly than people are more overtly, but you were born a rebel. And parents, let me say it again. You can do nothing to mess up your kids because they come that way. Our goal as parents is not to protect them from all the influences of the world because the influences of the world aren't out there. They're where? They're in here. Now, we need to not put them in harm's way and not put them in the way of evil. I'm certainly for that. But understand that the problem is not the world's influence in their heart. The problem is they are born with a black, wicked, sinful heart that needs a savior. So I was able to explain to the students, you know, you're you're in trouble. You're in trouble with God. You have to be perfect to go to heaven. And then you just kind of wait and let them say, oh, no, well, what? If I can't fix my past and I can't fix my future and I'm imperfect and God demands perfection, I'm in trouble. What do I need? You know what you need? You need perfection and you can't get it yourself. But Jesus, 
is perfect. Jesus was perfect. He stands perfect. And have you ever thought about the, the, the truth of the gospel reality? I mean, wouldn't, why did Jesus come for 33 years? I mean, didn't God really only need him for a weekend? Tell you what, go down, it's going to be a rough, rough Friday, die, buried, back in heaven by Sunday night. I mean, why 30 plus years? Why three decades? So that, as John and Matthew say, he could fulfill what? All righteousness. So that in every category, he could please God. In every category, he could obey God. That's why in Matthew 4, when you see him tempted, he's tempted in three categories, three areas. What? Less the flesh, less the eyes, the boastful pride of life, which is exactly what John chapter 2, verses 14 to 16 says. That's all Satan has. That's everything in the world. Those are the three ways Jesus was tempted, and he conquered sin because he's perfect. So he stored up, he reservoired in himself all of this righteousness by obeying God and was righteous in himself because he was God. And the great news of the gospel is on the cross, God treats Jesus like he lived yours in my life, this ugly, wicked life for which we deserve death. And he crucified Jesus as our substitute for our sin so that he could in heaven treat us as if we had lived Jesus' perfect, righteous life. You know what that is? That's good news. That's the gospel. You say, prove it. Well, he rose from the dead. That's proof enough. That vindicated. Now, this all comes to, to fruition in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. You know it well. God made him, Jesus, God made Jesus who knew no sin... The New American Standard supplies this verb, to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. I'll tell you a little quick story. There was a, a gentleman from uh, um, uh, Jamaica who, didn't, who was fresh in, uh, in the States. He was at, in California in our church. Uh, John MacArthur was preaching and preaching on this passage and was explaining what the Greek says. And the Greek says this, he made him who knew no sin sin on our behalf. But the word sin there, the second sin, is a noun, not a verb. He made him sin, the noun. He didn't make him sin like he sinned as a verb. So obviously the, the gentleman's English was, was a little more broken uh, than Southern California. So John says, God made Jesus sin on our behalf. Obviously meaning the noun, sin. This guy bolts up that's heresy. My Savior never sinned. How dare you say he sinned? And it was wonderful to watch John handle this. And he just said, oh, I'm so glad. And this is in front of 3,000 people. He says, I'm so glad you said that so I can clear it up. He said, it's the noun. It's not the verb. He didn't make Jesus commit sin. He turned Jesus into our sin. Why? So that we might become, here it is, here's the word, the righteousness of God, where? In Christ, in him. So when we're talking about the gospel and being used by the Holy Spirit to explain gospel truth, we come to the unrighteousness of all men and the righteousness of only Christ to please and satisfy God, which is it's the accounting word, imputed. It's put into our account 
for free because of grace. How does the Holy Spirit help the church in preaching the gospel? He convicts the world of the sin of unbelief. He convicts the world of their true nature before righteousness. Third, by convicting the world of the judgment of God. Very simple, very short. By convicting the world of the judgment of God. Verse 11, and concerning judgment. Because the ruler of this world has been judged or literally has already been judged. The third way the Holy Spirit uses the message of the gospel in our witness is to warn people of the coming judgment. Someone once asked, are you trying to scare me into heaven? And if you're following the logic of the Holy Spirit, the answer is, yeah. If hell is real, I would like for you to be scared of that reality. Yes, you should be afraid of the coming judgment. Notice that Jesus goes straight after Satan and alludes to his defeat on the cross here. What was about to look like the enemy's greatest victory, he put the Son of God on the cross and killed him, was going to be his greatest defeat. Why? Because what Satan didn't count on, according to Acts chapter 2, is that Jesus would rise from the dead. The ruler of this world has been judged, and if he has been judged, then the inhabitants will surely follow. That's Jesus' point. Does your gospel presentation include the certain expectation and terrifying expectation of judgment? If someone stops you and says, whoa, are you trying to scare me? The honest answer is, brother, sister, I want you to be scared. You should be scared. You're going to face the holy and living God. And you want to face him on behalf of Christ's righteousness, not yours. That is not a good scenario. So what do we put this together? If the Holy Spirit is going to be sent and work through these men and ultimately through us, if he's going to work through us, what does that look like? How does that help our evangelism? Here it is, real simple. Here's a simple outline for your evangelism. You you want to know how to enter a a, a discussion with someone about the gospel, how to tell them about Christ, how to tell them how how they can be saved? Here it is. Tell them about the sin of unbelief and the critical nature of faith in Christ. Tell them of the issue of righteousness regarding their unrighteous standing before God and Christ's righteous standing before God. And tell them about the impending day of judgment before which, before God, whom they'll stand and give an account for what they did with Jesus. Now, I can't resist this. I have to show you how this prophecy was fulfilled in the first sermon. Just for a moment, turn over to Acts chapter 2. Just within a couple of verses, Peter just does this. The Holy Spirit uses these three elements in Peter's sermon. Look at verse 22. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene. He didn't say the gospel. And I'm all about telling the gospel, but it has to center on Jesus the Nazarene. His message was Christ. A man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men 
and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in his power. So in verses 22 to 24, you see the sin of rejecting Christ. The issue is Jesus. He pressed the issue of Jesus Christ, the one who they crucified. He is the issue of your eternal destiny. He also talked about God attesting to Christ's righteousness. Look in verse 22. A man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst. You yourselves know God proclaimed him as righteous. Now look at verses 34 and 35. For was it not David who ascended into heaven? But It was not David, rather, who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand, look at the judgment, until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So you can see very clearly in Peter's first sermon those three elements. Sin. Sin is related to disbelieving Jesus. Righteousness. The righteousness of Christ alone applied to our account and our utter unrighteousness to receive mercy from God on our own. And the coming judgment one day will judge his enemy and make them a footstool. When you consider the story of David and Goliath, the often missed point is that God was doing way more on that battlefield than a slingshot and a sword. We look at that and say, wow, that's awesome. Wow, to be David. All David did was kill a big guy. But the Holy Spirit does something far more miraculous through you and me. When you consider the work of evangelism, the often missed point is that the Holy Spirit is doing his convicting work through your faithful message. That's remarkable. Now, I don't want to get spooky and mystical about this, but I've sensed this before. Have you ever given the gospel to someone and you kind of finish it and you thought, boy, that wasn't me. That was way bolder than I usually am. That was way clearer than I usually think. That, That was different. What, what, what is that attested to? The Holy Spirit doing exactly what he promised to do, what Jesus promised he would do. He would come and do his work through us. Now that also puts a tremendous amount of responsibility on you and me. God is working in the world. Teach them to believe the gospel through what we say. How shall they hear unless they're told? God calls us to be the tellers. And even when we're rejected, to not be surprised by that, it's exactly what he predicts would happen. Think of the, the ministry of the disciples. I've often thought as those men were approaching death, as they were about to be killed, crucified upside down, beheaded, eaten by wild beasts. I often think, I know that their hope was stayed on Jehovah and I know that they were very secure in their faith in Christ and they were happy and joyful to see him soon, but I I wonder if they looked around and said, that's it? The whole world was turned upside down by the Holy Spirit's work through these 11 men. And 
He's still in the business of upsetting the world through believers like you and me. You are the Holy Spirit's loudspeaker for the gospel. That's a tremendous privilege and an overwhelmingly humbling thought, but carries the responsibility of faithfulness. The Holy Spirit helps the church in the preaching of the gospel. How? By us preaching the gospel. So the faithfulness is in telling people about Christ. It's possible. We've talked about the gospel. We've explained the gospel. It's possible that you're sitting here and you're thinking, well, that kind of makes sense, but I've never really received that. You may believe that. You may believe something about it. I'd love for you to talk to someone before you leave. There's going to be uh, uh, some folks over here at our prayer room to my right, that door. I'll be over there with my wife. We would love to talk to you about it. Don't leave the building without having your soul accounted for because of the coming judgment, though. Please, please don't leave without having that account settled that you'll render responsibility for in eternity. Father, I'm I'm in awe, I'm in shock that you would use the likes of me and folks in our church to to not only believe, but to be representatives of, of you and to be used by your spirit to do the work of God. We are in shock and in awe by that. Oh, Father, make us faithful to be useful to your spirit. To convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment and to call people to repentance and to also convict and prosecute them so that they will face you with a very clear gospel that they rejected. Win souls through our faithful witness to your glory and because of your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a presentation of Mission Road Bible Church in Prairie Village, Kansas. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com. <laughs>